Hello everyone, this is Angelita Hendrickson and I'm a Quality Improvement Advisor for QSource. And today I'm in conversation with Dr. Ryan Sarver, a family physician through Schnick Medical there in Jackson County, Indiana. Hello, Dr. Sarver. Hi, Angelita. Thanks so much for having me today. Yeah. In our last podcast, we discussed ending the stigma of addiction and how you can get support and treatment. And our listeners would really like for us to dive deeper into what exactly addiction is, what causes it, and how does it develop. So let's get started. And can you please tell us how addictions develop? Yeah, you bet. Um, and really the root of addictions are in mal, what we call maladaptive coping mechanisms. And what that is, is when you become stressed in life or a negative life experience happens, you have these different behaviors and, and go-to things that you like to do uh, to relieve the stress or escape from the stress or improve your situation. Depending on what you're doing and what, these, what kind of impacts these behaviors have on your life, determine whether or not it is a positive or negative coping mechanism. For instance, we talk about positive coping mechanisms going for an angry run. Maybe you just can't deal with it right now. So you go and, and just run out some of that en energy. Side benefit of that is you get a little bit of exercise and your body gets healthier. In addition to reducing the, the anxious energy that you have in your body, and you can come back to it with a level head and, and maybe attack the problem from a, a different uh, viewpoint. So that's a example of a positive coping strategy. Negative coping strategies, or what we call maladaptive coping strategies, are ones where people have behaviors that uh, impact their life in a negative manner. Some of the most common ones are substances. So people will often talk about having to go to the bar after a, a stressful day at work or go home and have a beer after a stressful day at work. What they're really talking about is using a substance to alter their brain chemistry to reduce their anxiety. There's argument currently in the literature about if there is a safe level of alcohol. Most experts would agree the answer is probably no. There is no safe level of alcohol. There are studies showing that a small amount of red wine, when I say small, I'm talking like a shot glass full of red wine, may have benefits for your health. But by and large, the amount of alcohol that people typically imbibe is going to cause many negative health consequences, uh, which are multitude, including cancers, liver disease, peptic ulcer disease, bleeding ulcers. And we're not just talking about the, the negative effects on your home life and your working life from uh, being inebriated. Uh, these are actual physical damage you're doing to your body from the alcoholic self. These maladaptive behaviors, which could be lashing out, could be uh, arguing, could be gossiping, could be fighting, breaking things, or using substances cause harm to the relationships around us and cause people's lives to become more difficult because they get in trouble with their peers, they get in trouble at their work, they get in trouble with their with their family members, and possibly even in trouble with the law and wind up either you know having fines or uh, worse, uh, wind up incarcerated. So what we're talking about is what today with addiction is one of the maladaptive coping mechanisms of using a substance to alter how we feel so that we can escape that negative stress or anxiety. 
Now, how do these develop into addictions? And the DSM-5 has definitions for what is and isn't a substance use disorder. So there's substance use, and then there's a substance use disorder, and we'll get into that in, in just a minute. However, what people will do is they'll use alcohol, cannabis or marijuana, opioids, uh, heroin, fentanyl, Oxycontin, Vicodin, Percocets, all of the opiate pills, or methamphetamines, tobacco in the form of nicotine, um, and even caffeine to reduce anxiety. I think probably the number one addiction in America is probably coffee. And people will talk about using their legal stimulants or, you know, don't talk to me in the morning until I have my cup of coffee. Well, let's be honest with ourselves. That's actually a caffeine addiction. Caffeine doesn't have a lot of negative health consequences or negative uh, social consequences, so it's an accepted addiction. There are addictions that are on a spectrum of whether or not they're accepted, depending on the amount of damage they do to your body or the damage they do to society. So let's talk about tobacco. For the longest time, tobacco was an accepted addiction uh, because people didn't really pay attention to the fact that smoke causes uh, damage to your lung tissue, which is going to cause a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease in the form of emphysema, and you're going to wind up being in a wheelchair on oxygen until later on. In fact, we, we see uh, in the 1950s ads where doctors, they say doctors recommend smoking because it's good for your digestive system or some other sort of nonsense. Well, maybe nicotine does help you lose weight because it reduces your want to eat, but hey, the negative side effects are so much worse with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or emphysema or chronic bronchitis and lung cancer that that far outweighs that. So we know that tobacco is a very bad societal thing, which is why there were such great campaigns in the 80s and 90s to get people to stop smoking and to stop having smoking uh, indoors as a societal norm. And now we can see that that's really been successful. A lot of people have quit smoking with that. Now we're talking about substances which have a lot of harms to your social network, to your family, to your job, and we're moving into alcohol. Alcohol in small levels causes people to be uninhibited, disinhibited, uh, and they feel more comfortable being social, which is why alcohol is such a common thing in social situations. And they're often you know, more likely to, to talk to other people and to dance and, and appear to have a fun time. Whereas if you start having too much alcohol, then you really do damage to the back of your brain and you start stumbling everywhere and slurring your words and crashing cars. Now we talk about negative societal ills from alcohol use. And we know that alcohol use disorder is one of the number one substance use disorders in America um, and causes a lot of societal problems, which is why we have so much work in medicine towards alcohol rehabilitation, alcohol detox, and medications for alcohol use disorder. I'm often surprised uh, uh, when patients come in and they don't know what a safe amount of alcohol is. And really, as we discussed before, there isn't a safe amount of alcohol. However, there is a definition of what's considered health, quote unquote, healthy drinking versus unhealthy drinking. Current definition of healthy drinking splits it into genders. I know we have to be a little sexist in medicine. There's actually a reason for that in science and that most men have an additional enzyme to break down alcohol. Don't ask me why evolution gave that to us or you know God gave that to us, but men have an extra enzyme so they can imbibe more. And often they're larger individuals, so they can imbibe more alcohol. So we often will tell patients that men are allowed two standard drinks daily for an average of 14 in a week and no more than five in one sitting, whereas women are allowed 
one daily, an average of seven weekly, and no more than five in one sitting. Going over that is associated with cancers, with peptic ulcer disease, with damage to various organs in your body, dementia, you name it, all sorts of negative health effects. And what is a standard drink? A standard drink is a 12-ounce beer at 4% alcohol, a 5-ounce uh, glass of wine. And if you like to imbibe wine, I, I want you to go and figure out what a 5-ounce glass of wine is, and you will be very surprised how small that is. So <laughs> I'll often laugh with people when I say, you need 5 ounces of wine, and I show them with my fingers that it's you know about an inch tall in, in your glass, and it's mostly empty glass. That's actually a glass of wine. Most people are probably drinking between a quarter to a half a bottle of wine with each one of their, their goblets they're imbibing. No, that's not a glass of wine. We need to calm down as a society and reduce the amount of drinking if we want to be healthy. And then patients can make their own decisions as far as that's concerned. Hard alcohol is one and a half uh, ounces, so that's a, a standard shot glass. So once those definitions are made, people can really evaluate whether or not they're imbibing a safe amount of alcohol, quote unquote healthy, quote unquote safe, or unhealthy or unsafe amount of alcohol. And then past alcohol, we start moving into, into substances which cause even more detriment to the brain and uh, into behaviors. And those are methamphetamines or other uh, stimulants, which cause uh, large aberrations in behavior. And because the detoxification or withdrawal from these medications is so painful, uh, patients will often lie, steal, or harm others in order to get this get this substance so they don't feel bad. And that's really where a lot of societal ills come from. And probably one of the roots of the, the drug wars that uh, was created in America in the, in the 1980s, where they wanted to end the crime associated with drug use. And really it's people trying to escape the negative effects of withdrawing from these drugs. And then we move into even more dangerous medications because of how they can instantly kill you. And those are opioids. Opioids will kill you by stopping your breathing, even more so as these newer opioids become the synthetic opioids like fentanyl and carfentanyl. These will, uh, people who are not accustomed to taking large amounts of opiates will take these medications. They'll think they're using heroin and on the first dose will stop breathing. Nobody's around to deliver Narcan to them and save their life and they'll wind up dead. And that's really where, where we're at in America and why we have an epidemic is that people are dying in droves. You're talking over 100,000 people die every year from overdose deaths. L large portion of that is driven by all the uh, heroin out there being fentanyl and all of the pressed pills you think are some prescription, but they're not. They're a pressed pill from cartels in Mexico, and it's almost pure fentanyl. Well, now they're just mixing it all together as a large bundle of junk, but it used to be pure fentanyl. And so people would use them and wind up dead. And that's really what we're faced with. Now, where, how did we get here? We talked about maladaptive coping mechanisms, and these are the different chemicals people use to avoid these maladaptive coping mechanisms. How did they get here? Most likely, it's a culmination of things. One, there's a genetic component, we believe, in that your grandparents probably had a genetic component uh, for alcoholism or for drug use, or they had uh, higher rates of anxiety, depression, or other mental illness in the family than their parents did, and then so do they. But in addition to that combined, we have generational trauma where you have grandparents who 
did not have positive coping strategies. So they use negative coping strategies. And when you're inebriated with alcohol, so you're drunk or you're high on a substance, you're not going to make good parenting decisions. And so kids are exposed to trauma. The ACE study done by Kaiser Permanente, I believe it was in the 1990s, showed that kids who have higher rates of trauma in their childhood, whether it be emotional, physical, sexual, or trauma that they witnessed uh, to their parents have higher rates of substance use disorder in addition to anxiety, depression, diabetes, high blood pressure, you name it. Um, and so you have this cycle of generational trauma where the grandparents, then the parents taught the children these negative coping strategies. And at some point, either they, they wind up dead or they get help and they break the cycle of generational trauma. And so the addiction is a, is a combination of trauma plus a genetic component plus being taught a negative coping strategy, which is very effective at escaping the negative feelings associated with the trauma or the anxiety or the depression. And then that medication or that substance will cause the person such negative withdrawal feelings, so much more so than the trauma or the anxiety and depression that they will do almost anything to return back to normal so they don't feel so bad withdrawing off of opiates. Most of our listeners may not know that when you withdraw off opiates, it's like the worst flu you've ever had in your life. Your bones feel like they're breaking. Your stomach feels like it's turning in knots. You have horrible diarrhea. You have sweats. You feel like you're on fire from fever. You have chills. You name it. It feels like the worst flu ever. So people don't want to feel sick anymore. So they'll seek out this medication at all costs, this drug at all costs, so they can finally feel normal. They're not even trying to get high anymore. So this negative coping strategy has, has dumped them into a cycle of drug use, which they can't escape from. And that's really where we're at nowadays with addiction. And we have excellent treatments, which later on we can talk about some of those treatments. So you mentioned the DSM-5. Can you share with us some specific medical criteria for the different substance use disorders and kind of explain that book, if you will, <laughs> the yeah. DSM-5 and what that's all about? You bet. Yeah, the DSM uh, the DSM five is a, a a diagnostic manual that we use uh, to determine whether or not somebody has what kind of mental pathology. We'll say what kind what kind of uh, of mental illness we're really dealing with, and you know, is this something going on in your life that is uh, you're you're having uh, you know a bad day, or is this something that that is is truly a disorder? And we have criteria by which we go on. So there are substance use disorders, and then there's su substance induced disorders. And for, for example, a substance use disorder would, would really be people who continue to take a medication or uh, continue to take a, a, a drug, because drug really is just medication of the same word, uh, despite experiencing really negative effects in their life whether it be legal or job or with their family members or health, they continue to do it despite the fact they know that it's bad for them. That's really what it makes a disorder, a disorder. And then there's substance-induced disorders, which is when you get intoxicated or high or you have withdrawal or you have anxiety from trying to get, get the, the drug. So those are induced by that, by that drug. 
So now we're going to talk about the actual use disorders. And there are 11 criteria that we use. So the first one is if you go and take larger and larger amounts of uh, substance. So you need larger amounts than you're meant to, and you keep taking more and more. And that's because of tolerance and then dependence. Number two is uh, you want to stop, but you can't. You're unable to stop. So for people who smoke cigarettes, I, they say, I know I need to quit smoking, but I just can't. Number three, you spend a lot of time trying to procure the, the drug or the substance or a lot of time recovering from its use. For instance, for alcohol, for those who drink to excess and get drunk the next day, they have a hangover. And so there's all sorts of cures for hangover out there when in actuality, that's really criteria for a substance use disorder. Uh, number four, you have cravings or urges to use that substance. Number five, you're not managing to keep up with the expectations in your life, whether it, you know, work, home life, school, or any other social obligation because of the substance use. Number six, you continue to use it uh, even when it, it's causing issues in your family or your relationships. Number seven, you no longer go to social engagements or occupational engagements or hang out with friends because of your substance use. You avoid hanging out with friends because of the substance. Number eight, uh, you keep using substances over and over, even if it puts you in danger. Number nine, you continue to use it even when you uh, know that you have a have a problem with it, whether it's physical or psychological, or you know that if you use this, you're going to get worse, but you can't stop yourself. Number 10, you need more and more of the substance to get the effect you want, which is actually the definition of tolerance. And then number 11 is uh, you're getting withdrawal symptoms uh, and you go and seek out the, the substance in order to avoid those withdrawal symptoms. So those are the 11 criteria. And then we split it into a mild, moderate, or severe disorder, depending on how many of the criteria you met you meet. So some of our listeners might be ticking off with alcohol or with their smoking or with their caffeine and have noticed that they have two to three of these and they meet two to three criteria. Well, that's a mild substance use disorder. If you meet four to five, that's moderate. Six or more is severe. And if it's one of the more severe compounds that when we're talking methamphetamines, uh, opiates or alcohol, then really, if you're in the mild, moderate, severe category, you should be seeking help. And if you're severe, we're really talking about inpatient uh, rehabilitation or detoxification, especially with dangerous medications like alcohol. Most people don't know you can't stop drinking cold turkey because you can get you can actually get uh, seizures from that. So you can't stop alcohol abruptly if you drink a lot because you could get end up getting seizures and dying. So seek help. Well, I have a question. So could one disorder build upon another? And I come from that because back in the day growing up, you know, marijuana was prevalent in, in my time. And there was well, always, it was, <laughs> well, and it was always said that that was a gateway to addiction. Sure. And sure. I'm just curious, is there any truth to that statement? <sighs> There's so much argument about that of whether or not it's a gateway. Um, more than likely, no. But the person who 
who is procuring marijuana illegally is going to come in contact with social networks that have other substances. And if they have a negative life event and they want something stronger than marijuana to help them ignore that negative life event, that's really the gateway. So the maladaptive coping mechanism strategy is truly the gateway to the drug use, not necessarily one drug versus another. Uh, whereas if you use any substance to alter your, your brain chemistry, it's going to cause disinhibition, making you more likely to make a decision, you a, a bad decision or a negative decision for your life than you would otherwise if you weren't high. So if you were sober, you're more likely to make a better decision for your life, a more positive coping strategy. So the gateway there is really the, the negative maladaptive coping strategy combined with the disinhibition of using either alcohol or marijuana. You know, over the last two years, we've heard how the effects of COVID have exasperated the use of certain substances such as nicotine and alcohol and opioids. Can you please share with us about the prevalence of these certain disorders during the pandemic and the aftermath? You bet. And I I don't know that we'll ever have really good data as far as prevalence because a lot of it doesn't get reported. Um, But we know for sure that alcohol sales soared during the beginning of the of the pandemic and there was uh, a lot of news reports about uh, you know alcohol use disorder being being the the next uh, pandemic because of the pandemic and this goes back to the roots of what we talked about before about the negative maladaptive coping strategies the pandemic was a serious stressor for almost everybody around the world in in America we had businesses shut down People lost their jobs. They were getting evicted from their houses. They couldn't afford their cars and they didn't know what to do. And if you don't have a strong social network, you don't have the resources to endure, the economic resources to endure. You don't have years of working on positive coping strategies rather than maladaptive coping strategies. Your go-to strategy is to escape. And that escapism was often in the form of alcohol, opiates, or methamphetamines, which we're still dealing uh, with the brunt of that. Before the pandemic, overdose deaths, which they were skyrocketing on the rise. So in 2017, 2018, and 2019, overdose deaths were somewhere between 60, 70, and 80,000 per year. Data from 2020 and 2021, we're looking at each of those years over 100,000 deaths. I think the last number the CDC put out was 107,000 overdose deaths reported preliminary for 2021. So we can clearly see just I mean, from deaths, from, from Americans dying of these, of these illnesses, that the pandemic accelerated this to a great extent. Yeah, definitely. Although we focused on substance use, There are other addictions that also have overwhelmed people's lives during this time. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, you bet. I mean, when we talk about addiction, we're really talking about uh, avoidance. So maladaptive coping strategy and then using something to avoid thinking about the anxiety that that causes. So you have a negative life event or you have anxiety or depression and you want to escape from that negative emotion. What do you go do? I know for me, I have a problem with social media. I'll pull out my phone and what I like to call death scroll. And, you know, that's something that I, that I battle with. Or we've talked about having that morning cup of coffee. Nobody talked to me until I have my second cup of coffee. These are, you know, these are, are addictions that, that people have. There are other things. People have addictions to food. 
that's rampant. So what were the negative consequences of that? Well, it could be weight gain. It could be diabetes. It could be high cholesterol and heart disease, all from eating foods to, you know, we talk about eating our feelings. Really sugar should be on the list of substance use disorders as well, because we know that pure sugar and refined sugars are addictive. So that's, those are more addictions that people have. One that isn't oft talked about that should be talked about is pornography. All the negative effects, societal effects of human trafficking and in society or in the news, we talk about the Me Too movement and women really coming into their own in, in owning the negative things they've put up with in the workplace and having equal pay. And yet pornography is on the rise and people talk about how maybe it's okay to look at and, and, and use pornography, but it destroys relationships. We see this in, in literature. It, we know it's associated with human trafficking. We know that it's associated with, with substance use disorders as well for those who are involved in it, along with rises of sexually transmitted infections, you name it. Gambling is another one, which is on the rise. Now we see these commercials for sports betting. I know that we're going to have an influx of people seeking care for uh, addiction uh, to their, their gambling problems. So there's a lot of different things that people can be addicted to. And I think that what our listeners need to think about is, is there something I'm doing in my life that I use as a coping strategy for when life throws something negative at me, when I feel bad, or when I'm done with the day, what is my go-to thing? Is it something positive, like hanging out with my family members? Is it a hobby where I'm building something, I'm creating something, I'm drawing, I'm painting, I'm sewing, I'm knitting, I'm doing woodworking or going and exercising and improving my body and getting out uh, stress from that? Is it going and teaching a class or is it something where I am withdrawing and I am doom scrolling on my phone on social media? Am I going home and eating as many Twinkies as I can to make myself feel better? Am I grabbing that bottle of wine and not being done until that bottle of wine's done? Is it me going and grabbing a, a six pack or 12 pack of beer and, and finishing that beer because I need to finally get rid of my stress from the day? That's what they need to ask themselves. Which one of their coping strategies are they using? And if it's one of the coping strategies that has negative consequences for their life, they should reevaluate that. And if they can't, they may meet criteria for a substance use disorder and they can seek help, seek treatment. There's great treatments out there and we can get their life back on track. A good segue as we wrap up today's conversation, where can they find support? You know, whether it is for substance use or even those other non-substance use addictions. Where would you guide people to, to just begin that conversation? You bet. And I think your number one resource is going to be your primary care provider. Um, talk to them. Tell them about your struggles. And one of the issues people have there is you, you, you don't quite know what you're going to get with your primary care provider, whether or not they're trained in addiction. However, if they're a primary care physician, they will likely have some training in addiction and can guide them into local resources for what kind of addiction they have. There are national hotlines you can call for gambling addiction, uh, national hotlines for addiction to pornography. There are so many different resources for alcohol uh, uh, addiction. And now for opiate use disorder and some of the methamphetamine use disorders, we have some great treatment options for opiate use disorder a lot of primary care providers are becoming 
X waiver to be able to prescribe medications, which will really change patients' lives and get them out of the cycle of use of opiates and have a normal life. First and foremost, go talk to your, your, your family doctor, your primary care provider, and they should be able to guide you. If they can't, there's a wealth of information. You can just Google it and find some information there. Make calls. If you're in crisis, a lot of places will have a hotline, which is 988. You can dial 988 and they will, uh, they will get you through to a mobile crisis team that will help get you into treatment. So thank you again, Dr. Sarver, for spending this time today and talking to us about what all is addiction. My pleasure, Angelita. Thanks so much for having me.